morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Murmurations podcast. Um, I'm joined today by Dr. Anne Luce. Uh, morning, Anne. Good morning. Nice to see you again. Anne is an Associate Professor of Journalism and Communication at Bournemouth University. And uh, we're going to be talking today about um, Anne's research and teaching that she's been doing for some time now on reporting suicide and also looking at mental health in the media. So I, I've known Anne for some years, but we haven't spoken for ages. So we did our PhD together at Cardiff and yeah. you were doing the reporting suicide project that you'll talk about sh shortly yeah. um, back then. And uh, do you want to give us a quick overview of what you're currently doing in terms of research and teaching before we get into more of the detail? Yeah, so, um, well, it is great to see you. It has been too too long, really. Um, good the too, good yeah. old days back in the diff. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, so I, yeah, I started with the suicide um, work back, you know, 2006 time period. Um, and I have carried on with it. Um, I, you know, the more, it's kind of one of those things, the more you research it, the more that there's more to learn. Um, so today I, you know, I'm still doing suicide research, working a lot with journalists, but I'm also working a lot more in the community now as well. So, um, doing research and, uh, working with Public Health England, NHS England, um, and, and thankfully have been able to bring that over into, the classroom, um, much like yourself, I'm a big advocate of research-led teaching, um, and so I, I teach a class called Media and Trauma, um, and within that unit, you know, we're able to talk, we talk about death, you know, the first, you know, we kind of, I said, I said a grounding for, you know, what is trauma in the first week, but by week two, the first question is, so how do you want to die? Um, which can be really quite alarming for final year, um, communication and media and English students who actually get to take the class, but it covers a range of topics, um, you know, all the taboo topics that we don't really get to talk about, you know, we talk about suicide, we talk about rape, we talk about transnational trauma, transgenerational trauma, but the, the thing that ties it all together is how do we actually talk about these things in the media? So how are they represented in TV programs, in films, in comics, in, you know, in newspaper articles, TV news, you know, the, it runs the gamut, really. Um, right. But it's, you know, I, I've been teaching it now for going into my sixth year, and I have to say it's the highlight, you know, of my year. I just love teaching the class. So, okay. yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, what uh, and what program? What programs do you teach on at Bournemouth? Uh, well, what journalism programs? Yeah, so I teach on the um, multimedia journalism degree, our BA in multimedia journalism. Also, do a little bit of a stint with our masters in multimedia journalism. Um, teach on communication and media, a little bit on English, and on a masters in media and communication. So I tend to drop in because I've really, you know, it might sound like a lot, but actually, I'm I'm quite keen on talking you know across the degrees that we offer yeah. around mental health and suicide prevention because it is yeah. an issue that permeates society and you know and what what i've found over the years is that you know many colleagues are afraid to talk about those issues because yeah, sure. you know, they're so taboo and it's also mm. you know especially if you're talking about suicide 
you run the risk of, you know, or people feel they run the risk of, oh, if I say something, will I make someone take their own life? So, you know, so I, I just see it as my, my duty to, you know, kind of get out there and try to destigmatize as much as I possibly can. Yeah, that was why I asked the question really, because I knew you did a breadth of teaching. And I think it's a really important point in relation to all the stuff we're going to talk about now is that this is, this is so relevant to, to everybody, but also so many disciplines that we, we teach in and so many, you know, media and public conversations that are going on at the moment. It's, it's really important area. So yes, I'll tell you what, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I say that, you know, you're right. It is very important. And, you know, and the reason is so important. And I think people aren't really aware of the stats, to be honest with you. You know, the most recent stats in the UK show that there were 6,507 suicides in 2018. Now, what that did was it left potentially 878,000 people bereaved by suicide. And when you've been bereaved by suicide, you're at a much higher rate of suicide or risk of suicide yourself. So, you know, for one suicide, between six and 135 people are affected. So it has this massive knock-on effect, you know, in society. Um, and I finished up a project about a year ago, and we're just writing it up at the moment, but, um, you know, I did a survey with um, journalism students in the UK and Ireland. Um, and 20% of them had been personally affected by suicide. So they had lost someone close to them. So a family member or a really close friend. So, you know, this issue affects our students, you know, so it's, I don't think it's one that we can shy away from in the classroom. Doesn't mean we have to, you know, you don't have to develop a whole unit on it or a module on it, but I think it is, it is important enough that it's mentioned in the classroom when we're teaching our students yeah sure um okay do, uh, what i was going to do is ask you about your phd project really yeah, that's yeah. that's that's yeah. stimulated so much of the stuff you're still doing now do you yeah. want to go back to the research you did for your phd back in cardiff all those years ago all those years ago well i don't know if anyone really knows this to be honest but when i showed up in cardiff to do my phd my phd originally was going to be looking at childhood suicide and how it was um, represented in the media, in the British media. Uh, because I had read a, read a study somewhere that if you, you know, you could pretty much, if someone had their first suicide attempt, you could predict that if they were going to die, it would be within 10 years. And so I wanted to kind of see, is that discourse around in the media? You know, how did that all work? And actually, you know, I was two years into my PhD when the Bridgen suicides happened um, just down the road in Cardiff. Um, and it became, a, it, because it was on the doorstep, it, you know, I switched the whole PhD to just look at the Bridgen suicides. Mm. And it was a real interesting experience doing your PhD while the media reporting was unfolding day to day. Um, mm. And so it was my first real exposure with kind of tracing you know, how are stories on suicide reported and, you know, and what are the problems with them? And so what emerged from that was I actually was able to find um, the key discourses that there's five different ways that journalists stigmatize suicide when they're reporting. Um, do you want to, before you go into any detail yeah, on, the, on those discourses, do you want to just remind people what the Bridge End suicides 
Well, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so the Bridgend suicides were, you know, there was a cluster of suicides um, in the borough of Bridgend, not to be, you know, confused with Bridgend town. Um, yeah. But it, there was about 20 suicides between January and June 2008. And it seemed at the time that this was actually a really massive problem. Um, but actually, there was a bit of a moral panic going on because it was more about social networking sites than it was actually about the suicides. Because as I started to drill down more into the actual data um, and looking at historical statistics, and even now, I've gone, you know, since 2008, I continue about, you know, once a year, once every, you know, two or three years, I will go and look at the stats for Bridge End. And the number of suicides hasn't changed. In fact, if the media was going to report on the Bridge End suicides when there was a bit of a rise, it should have happened in 2004. So it should have happened four years earlier. There wasn't a story there in 2008. The story was that there were three friends who had killed themselves. The media got a hold of it, but it was, you know, they were talking to each other on Bebo, if we remember Bebo, <laughs> back oh. in the day, old school. Um, and yeah. Facebook was only just starting to make its way on, you know, onto the scene. I mean, it went public in 2007. So it wasn't, you know, the way that we think of Facebook today. Um, but but there was this fear that these young people in Bridgend were talking to each other on social media and they created a cult and a suicide pact and like all this big sensationalistic things, you know, were in across the media. Um, and, and it just simply wasn't true. But what ended up happening, unfortunately, was it became a media event. Um, and we had not only, you know, what was a local story in the South Wales Echo and the Western Mail, it actually became this national story with the national newspapers doorstepping across Bridgend, but then the international media descended. So it really was an interesting point in time that showed that there was a, a massive societal fear around social media. And I think it's quite interesting because I think we've seen something similar when 13 Reasons Why came out on Netflix a couple of years mm. ago. Yeah. Uh, because that's the fear of the, you know, of the streaming service of this unregulated, you can watch it whenever you want. It's, you know, there's no real control over it. And that was the issue with social media. There's no one to control social media. So, you know, if you want to post something online, there's no laws, there's no, there's nothing there really to prevent you from doing that. And so, um, so that was really what was going on underneath um bridge end but you know but it was actually it was the fact that there were these 20 deaths of young people um you know uh from january to june 2008 mm. okay so what was the what were those discourses that you well the discourse you know like the reaction to the suicide there was you know so anyone who you know had a reaction how they reacted was stigmatized there was a you know the people who you know had taken their own lives they were actually described as you know um deviant but beyond deviant like you know right. we often, you know we often see you know if we look back at the james bulger case you know, those two, you know, 10-year-olds were considered deviants 
But if you take your life, the way the British media describes you is beyond that. You're worse than a child making, you know, you go outside the normal discourse of what is, what is an acceptable way to die. So that was a real interesting finding. I mean, we, we kind of knew that in the suicide prevention field, but it was good to actually have the evidence, you know, to kind of ground the findings so that you could then start, you know, creating interventions and safe messaging you know, you know, as you move forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the framing of the stories was really, I think, most interesting. It was definitely a frame of social networking and the internet, and then a framing of childhood. So if you kill yourself, you are, you are described in the British media at that time, it's changed slightly now, but at that time you're described as a child. You didn't make a rational decision. This was a, a childish act or a childish decision on your part. And um, so, it, so what it did, the project served as a really strong foundation for how the British media reported suicide. And, and we didn't have anything at that time. There, there was no um, research coming out of the UK around you know, suicide reporting. Um, because, you know, historically, suicide reporting has always been lobbed in with, you know, crime reporting, you know, or court reporting. Um, mm. it, it, it's not, it, and even to this day, it's not a standalone, you know, topic that, you know, a journalism lecturer would stand at the top of a classroom and say, right, let me teach you how to report on suicide today. You know, yeah, it gets sure. lobbed in with other things, which can be mm. quite problematic if you want to change journalistic practice into the reporting of suicide. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So how how has that that project fed into your current research around suicide and mental health in the media? So that laid the foundation for me, you know, so once I knew the discourses, what I then yeah. did was I started spending some time trying to figure out well, what would be the guidelines that I could give to journalists? So I did quite a bit of work actually with the World Health Organization on um, suicide reporting guidelines for journalists. Um, and we right. created a set of guidelines in 2008 and we updated them in 2017. So I led on the aspect around, you know, using social media, using video, using audio, because unfortunately the panel that creates the guidelines doesn't have any journalists on it. So, um, you know, so I kind of use my journalism background where I started off and then coupled with the research I've done to kind of inform those guidelines um, so that journalists will use them. But what it, what doing those types of things actually led to, for me to just create four ethical rules for journalists. So just say to them, there's four things that you need to do, you know, don't sensationalize, don't stigmatize, don't glorify and don't gratuitously report. Right. But, you know, once you explain that, it's like, okay, thanks. Now what? Um, you know, so it's been a stage process. And so I've teamed up with a colleague um, up at Strathclyde University, Dr. Sally Ann Duncan. Um, okay. She's a senior lecturer in journalism and media ethics. And okay. um, what we've done now is we've created the responsible suicide reporting model. Um, and, a, and a, a suicide reporting toolkit for journalists and journalism educators. Because what we're finding is we need to be doing some of that pre-service training. We need to be teaching, you know, the journalists of tomorrow before they get into the newsroom. 
So it was about creating a model that working journalists could use, but also educators could teach the model so that when those students enter the newsroom, they already know how to report on suicide. So okay. what we've done is we've embedded um, media report, global media reporting guidelines on suicide, and we've embedded that into the storytelling process. Right, okay. Yeah. Is that been well received? Is is that how 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 long ago did these did this has this model these guidelines been out now? Has it been long? So, so the guidelines, um, I mean, the World Health Organization, two thousand eight and two thousand seventeen. Um, the Samaritans came out with some guidelines back in twenty thirteen. Um, right. the editor's code of practice has been talking about suicide reporting you know there was a line in 2006 and now it's a standalone clause in the editor's code of practice um, right. that came in 2015 so you know over the last 10-15 years or so there's been more attention paid to suicide reporting our model we released last year um, right. and incidentally enough um, it's getting a lot of traction in India and Malaysia um oh, which is <laughs> you know, have you made sense of the data yet do you know why um well we think it's um from talking to colleagues there what's what's really interesting is um up until 2018 in india suicide was a crime and in malaysia it still is a crime so it's not considered to be a public health issue like it is in the uk i mean in the uk you know you could be you know um arrested for a suicide attempt up until the 60s like you know so it's only since 1961 that even in this country it's not illegal to kill yourself it was recognized as a public health problem it's something that we need to address on multiple fronts um you know and and that's how we try to deal with and tackle suicide prevention in the uk now but in malaysia and india that's not the case it's still a crime they report on suicide just like they would report on cars being broken into in your local area um and they're displayed across front pages they show pictures um i mean it's out in southeast asia they will show pictures of people jumping out of buildings and you will get a frame by frame shot on the front page until there's a dead person on the ground. And that is just standard journalistic practice when it comes to reporting suicide. Thankfully, we don't have it to that degree, you know, in the UK, but we still have some pretty bad reporting in the UK. You know, we, we just, we've just um, finished a study looking at adherence to um, media guidelines in British journalism, um, which is out for a publication and that came back you know 25 percent of stories were, sh were giving an explicit roadmap on how to kill yourself using a specific method in british journalism in 2020 you know we can do better we have to do better so on the whole do you think that the that reporting around suicide suicide is is improving do you think it's is it better than it was or is it is it a struggle to really get these kind of ethical guidelines and models to to become a a really reliance sort of part of the way that journalistic storytelling works in this respect it's a real challenge to get them to implement the guidelines because they're guidelines there's no reason for journalists to, you know, to follow the Samaritans guidelines or the World Health Organization guidelines because there's nothing in it for them. They're not going to get in trouble 
they'll get an email from the Samaritans that says, could you please, you know, report better um, the next time, you know, you, you know, the next time that you write a story. But actually there's, um, there's no, there's no consequences to it. Um, so, so that is an issue. That, that is a big issue. Um, and the editor's code of practice is so weak. It, it really is yeah. weak. And, you know, but the problem within industry is they don't want to, there's, there's a fear that if you start, you know, asking journalists to report suicide in a particular way, that actually then you're censoring the story. But my argument is you can do this better. You can do responsible and ethical and truthful reporting on suicide that educates the public without causing harm to someone who's been bereaved or potentially someone who's vulnerable to suicide. Your reporting is not going to, you know, provide them a roadmap on how to do it, for instance. So yeah. our model then by what we've done is we've taken all of the global guidelines that the key ones five sets including the ones in the uk and we've mapped them on to um onto our model and so what we've done is we've found there's five different story types five different suicide story types right you apply my four ethical rules that i came up back with in the day and then you apply a standard of moderation and what it does is it gives you a middle way in terms. So if you, and the standard moderation is made up of six questions. So if you answer these six questions, then you can be confident that your story is following media reporting guidelines. It's meeting the editor's code of practice and you're not going to cause harm to anyone who's reading that story. So we're hoping that, you know, there'll be a bigger intake, you know, or uptake rather, um, you know, within the UK and, you know, the toolkit is going to, I think, going to be crucial to that. So, um, you know, for both journalists and for journalism educators. Yeah, and I guess I should have said in the beginning when I, when I introduced you to people who don't know your background, you've been a journalist. Yeah. You've worked as a journalist before you went into research. So yeah. um, I was talking, when we were talking to Joe the other week, there's a real value to critical um analysis of journalism and there's there's and and journalism theory yeah uh, it's not that you have to have been a journalist to be in journalism studies but there is there is an added value to somebody doing the kind of work you're doing when you've worked on the job and you know what is realistic to implement as guidelines well yeah and i tell you i mean it, it you know i have the journalism experience but i've also been bereaved by suicide as well um and so the two together um really you know i lost my partner back in 2005 and ultimately the newspaper that i worked at had his story his suicide story you know in our newspaper in the newspaper that i worked at mm. you know and at the time i couldn't understand why i felt so upset and so angry at my colleague who was a lovely guy who sat a couple desks down for me you know i went to lunch with you know two or three times a week i was like how could you be so mean and insensitive and you know so having the experience of knowing 
how journalism operates and how journalists think, you know, and, and understanding the production processes, you know, the deadlines and, you know, and it's much worse now, you know, than it was when, you know, I was a journalist 15, 16 years ago, you know, yeah. it's, you know, they've, you know, there's so much, you know, clickbait. That was never something that I ever had to think about. I was never worried about SEO. You know, we just kind of put it on the website and then people read it or they didn't, you know, yeah. it wasn't linked to advertising. It didn't have, you know, algorithms helping to drive stories on Google, for instance, you know, Google didn't exist. Um, so so it, it does help, especially when I'm talking to journalists, because journalists can be uh, a bit of a tricky bunch sometimes to work with. Yeah, no offense to my journalism colleagues out there. Uh, but, um, but it's pretty much, you know, when you talk to a journalist and say, hey, I want you to do, I want you to change your practice. They kind of get up in arms and go, you know what you're talking about. You're not a journalist. And I'm like, well, actually, I kind of am. And it's like, yeah, well, don't worry about suicide. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I've kind of been affected by it. So I kind of know what your readers would be going through. And in some ways, I find that is really helpful, you know, because they at least then will sit and, you know, talk to me, whether it's out of like just oh god i've offended her or you know i don't know how i don't care how i get their attention or you know i just sit down and have the chat you know mm -hmm. and and then we can talk through some of those some of those issues but yeah yeah do you think thinking about mental health more broadly yeah. as well thinking or thinking beyond just journalism do you think that the public discourse around suicide and mental health is starting to open up um i would say perhaps improving but at least starting to open up and and develop a bit more nuance so maybe people are starting to find it something they can talk about more i think in some demographics yes right. um i think in younger groups um you know your 16 to 25 year olds you know so probably our students ages a little bit younger a little bit older yeah they're talking about mental health is you know as it's you know they have their mental health just as much as they have their physical health you know it there's not this um you know there's not a divide between the two we all have mental health um mm. so you know it's so i think that in that respect it's good i would say you know those in their you know late 20s to late 30s you know we're kind of on that precipice you know it's like We'll talk about it, but we're still going to be quite cautious about who we talk to, you know, who we're going to talk yeah, to. Yeah. You know, you may not walk up to your line manager and have a very open conversation about mental health. Whereas, you know, I have students and probably you do too, you know, who will self-disclose the first day of class and, you know, and mm. say, yeah, I've got personality, borderline personality disorder. Um, and I really find it difficult to speak openly. Um, and they would have no problem with that. Whereas, you know, someone our age, you know, we wouldn't announce that, you know, first day on the job, you know, it, it just wouldn't happen. Um, I think older generations, I think we're still seeing a lot of stigma, you know, so those who are in their 60s, 70s, it's still something you don't want to talk about. And, but what's interesting, though, is that this, while we could be talking about it, the stats around suicide are not really changing. You know, in the UK, they're rising. Suicide rates are rising, you know, and they're rising in demographics that we have, we don't really talk about. I mean, we know men age 40 to 44 is a critical group.
we know that that is a, a group of people that you know we need men to be talking we you know and there's been loads of different initiatives that have been created to help men talk more you know there's been football clubs there's men's sheds you know we, we find that men will talk if they'll either talk to their friends or they'll talk to people they don't know, but they have some sort of an association with. So men's sheds, for instance, and they work well, men's sheds work really well for uh, older men in their 60s and 70s and 80s, um, where you're focused, you come once a week or twice a week to work on a project, you know, on something. So you could be putting a shed together or, you know, building, I don't know, a clubhouse or something. Oh, but, I've heard about this. Yeah, but actually, you come and it, you know, so if it was you and me, I'd be like, all right, Daz, how's it going? You know, and you'd be like, well, you know, this week, yeah, it's been a bit hard, you know, I'm having trouble with the wife and, you know, everything's getting a bit on top of me and, you know, and you may open up and you'll feel better for having opened up, but then you'll walk away and you'll never see that guy again, you know, mm -hmm. until next week. So he's not permeating your immediate life. So you get to talk, but you but it's not in your immediate everyday interactions. So we know that there's some success with that. Um, but you know, one of the fastest growing age groups for suicide is young girls between the ages of 10 and 24. Um, Self-harm is increasing in that age group. And, and, you know, and Lewis Appleby at Manchester has just done, he, he advises the government on their suicide prevention strategy. And, you know, he's done some research and he's finding that, you know, if girls have been bereaved, no matter the bereavement, could be losing a parent, a grandparent, parents, friends, you know, family friends, bereavement is putting young girls at a, a very high rate of suicide risk. Um, and what they're doing is they're turning to self-harm to cope with, you know, how they're feeling. And as they start getting into their 20s, it becomes riskier behavior and so we're seeing an increase in suicide rates in young females and we don't talk about females very often um but this is something that he's been trying to alert the media society to you know for the last 10 years um but we know young people are a demographic we know nurses and doctors are a demographic especially now you know covid related and dealing with that um, we know elderly people are at, at, at risk we know those who are suffering domestic violence are at a higher risk we know that farmers you know and the concern has been you know post-brexit you know how are farmers going to deal you know, farmers are on our risk registry here in Dorset because we've got a high population. You know, so when you start breaking down these different demographics, you know, it's a lot of people who potentially are at risk of suicide. So it actually, it affects all of us and it starts with mental health. Yeah, and I think mental health challenges, especially with, with COVID, um, people who haven't necessarily, or don't consider themselves people who have struggled with mental health before, yeah are, are going to be or have been experiencing it as a result of lockdown and yeah and well, the rest know, of it there could be cool. yeah we know that you know um phone calls to helplines have increased exponentially over lockdown i mean mm. we, we don't have any data that indicates that the suicide rate has gone up but we won't have that for another 
12 to 18 months, you know, because sure, the corner, sure. the way everything's calculated with the corners and the Office yeah. of National Statistics. But, but we do have, you know, some information that's saying, you know, helplines are, you know, the Samaritans are crying out for money because they can't, they don't have enough people to man the lines. They need more funding to be able to keep their hotlines going because they've seen such a rise in the number of phone calls they're getting. We know that self-harm has gone up and, and suicide attempts. We have that data is starting to show because different areas that have their own real-time surveillance systems, they're reporting in that, you know, you know, so there is risky behavior going on. Um, yeah. Whether it's leading to an increase in suicide, we just don't have that data. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, what do you think in terms of the field that we work in as well at the moment? This, we might all be stuck on Zoom a lot <laughs> and Teams and yeah. and all the rest of it. But there's obviously, um, I mean, every profession has its own pressures. But just speaking from our perspective and what we do yeah. there's obviously the concern we've obviously had to um look after our current students that we're trying to get through for graduation this year we're trying to prepare for next year what next year is going to involve because it's not as simple as just even online teaching is hard enough but it's not as simple as that there's yeah. going to be elements of, of of campus teaching and socially distancing but um also just missing the general corridor contact with people the passing chats and the uncertainty combined with the fact that we can't really get much research done at the moment but there's other pressures mounting up in that respect yeah. what do you think we can do to just just be supportive to each other as a as as colleagues in the field and i mean what what well, do you think i think there's some critical things around if we start with online teaching you know i'm sure you've heard it from your colleagues i know i'm hearing it from mine but you know you do one of these zoom calls for an hour for a meeting and sometimes you come off of it and you think god i need a nap for 45 minutes just to regain some energy yeah. and actually when you start looking into the research around you know being on video conferencing you know it says that it is harder for us to focus in terms of reading people's body language because we yeah. can only see heads and shoulders yeah. So you have no idea right now if my leg is bouncing up and down, which would show a heightened sense of anxiety. Yes. It's not, but you have no way of knowing that. <laughs> you haven't freaked me out that much yet, Dad. I'm good. I'm good. But, you know, but actually when we're in meetings, we're picking, like when we're all sitting around a, a table in a classroom having a chat about what are we going to teach next year, you yeah. can read the energy off of different people you are you are seeing how are they responding you know is so and so over there twiddling her hair and that's a sign that actually her anxiety is going up or you know or someone else like staring off into space and you know that you've lost them in this online world you could have 20 people on your screen and you actually have to focus on each individual person to try to understand how they're feeling and what's going on so we're having to focus a lot more which drains a lot of our energy so so that's one thing so that's okay when you're doing it with your colleagues but now try doing it with potentially 150 students in a classroom you know now hopefully most universities are you know saying well let's pre-record those lectures and only have maybe 20 students in a seminar on online at a time hopefully most universities are saying that but even that's going to be a lot 
a lot to take. And I think as academics, we also need to, we have to recognize that our well-being is really important as well. You know, I think we have to think a little bit more innovatively about how we're going to engage, um, you know, in this new online world, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I think it's really important as well. If you're if you're responsible for if you're a senior colleague or you're a, a team leader or a manager, yeah. to be one thing I've tried to do in my team is to be is to be calm and considered and compassionate and listen to people yeah. and make sure people know that you're listening as well. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time. Okay. Uh, so thank you very much for for, for talking to me. Oh, uh, before we before we go, do you want to? Uh, finish with a, a shameless plug do you want to talk is there what what i've forgotten what your book titles you've got two books out haven't you well i've got three but one of them isn't around suicide so i've got one on because I, I i did something interesting in the middle i got a little bit depressed talking about death all the time as you would understandable and so yeah. i went the other direction and started talking about birth um only only to find out that the same discourses I was finding around suicide were very similar to the ones we have about childbirth. So a really, so it was an interesting, it, it's really interesting how it all kind of hangs together. But yeah, no, I've got the Bridge End Suicides, Suicide in the Media, that's the first one. So that's, you know, kind of based off the PhD and an update um, of the Bridge End work and, and really Wales in terms of the suicide prevention strategy in Wales. So that's covered off right. in that book. Um, then there's the midwifery childbirth and media book in the middle. Um, and that's just working with, uh, colleagues from around the world who are working in midwifery and media and, and looking at, you know, they have a whole set of problems around interventions, you know, women going into hospital too soon, increase in stillbirths, you know, things like that. And women getting poorly because of interventions that they don't necessarily need. So, so that was the middle one. Um, and then the most recent one is ethical reporting of sensitive topics um right, and, okay. and that one is actually it's an edited collection but it's it's kind of the book i've always wanted to do to be honest um it's the book where as a journalist it, you know i kind of went in with the with the brief of if i was a journalist and i had to cover this story what was what would it be what what do i need to know to be able to do this ethically and responsibly mm. um so i started off with all the stories that i'd screwed up by myself when i was a journalist <laughs> and so found people to write what you're supposed to do not how Anne screwed up um put some stuff in there around suicide as well and then we covered off some topics that don't really get looked at you know mass shootings like what's you know what's the responsible and ethical way to cover a mass shooting now thankfully we don't have that problem in this country but the united states they've got a massive yeah, issue yeah. um you know gangs how do you cover gangs you know and urban violence um which we do have an issue you know mm. in this country um how do you cover other cultures you know so yeah so it's a really i really enjoyed bringing that that volume together so okay, excellent. yeah so can I give a plug for the toolkit? <laughs> one little plug, right. So we have the um, suicide reporting toolkit, um, which will be launching the 1st of August. And it's at www.suicidereportingtoolkit.com. 
and on there it's targeted at journalists and at journalism educators so for any journalism educators out there who want to start broaching the topic of suicide reporting mental health in their classroom we've created several different lesson plans where you could use one of the lesson plans if you had 15 minutes in a class where you wanted to talk about it or if you decided to dedicate a two-hour session but there's also enough content on there if you wanted to dedicate a whole semester um, and we talk about the ethics of teaching it how to keep your students safe how to do self-care for you and your students so we're hoping that will be a good resource for the field as well okay yeah excellent yeah okay um well thank you again for coming on and, and chatting i think you've covered some really really important stuff that's sensitive and not easy to talk about but i think you do a brilliant job of doing it and that was why i wanted to talk to you today so well, thank you for all your work and yeah well um, thank you for you know pulling this podcast together i think it's a great resource for the field so well done for you well done to you for you know for pulling all these great scholars together to talk about the great work they're doing it's great. No, thank you very much it's a it's just a pleasure to speak to really interesting people and get a chance to connect and chat and share it and hopefully share things that are not just interesting to colleagues in the field hopefully to people who don't even do what we do yeah, uh, yeah. but uh we won't leave it so long to chat next time. No, so. I know. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Yes, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Daz. Thank you. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye.